0: First Peter, chapter three. I'm going to start with verse thirteen. And read to verse 17 so we get the full context here. 1 Peter 3 13. And who is he that will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Here's our key verse. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as an evildoer, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for doing evil. Father, we need to be spiritually prepared. And so we ask God today that this lesson would help us and equip us to be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks us a reason why we have this blessed hope. Why is it that we believe as followers of Jesus that salvation is exclusive through the person of Christ? May we have confidence to share with lost people Why the Bible is our absolute authority for truth and for the way we practice our faith. Father, I pray that you'll embolden us, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So I'm kind of doing a series of topics. It's one topic, but different aspects of that same topic. And our topic is is spiritual preparedness. And so last week, I wanted to encourage you that we don't have to be embarrassed or ashamed of following Christ. Timothy was a young man. He was shy. He was introverted. And so Paul reminded Timothy of the faith, this genuine, unhypocritical faith that was in him. And that God had not given Timothy a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a confident mind, a sound mind. So he says, therefore, Timothy, do not be ashamed of me. Don't be ashamed of the witness of Christ. Don't be ashamed of my chains, but you be a partaker of the sufferings that will come about because you are a believer. Paul later on in that same book says, Everyone who lives godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. He was writing at the end of his life, closing toward his death. His death was was right around the corner. He says, I am being poured out as a drink offering. I have finished my course. I have run the race. I've I've done it, Timothy. And I'm ready to... To meet the Lord, my departure is at hand. He says, at my first defense, everybody left me. People are now shying away from standing up for Jesus. And this is no time in America for us to shy away from standing up for Christ. As any other time, this is a time where we need to be bold. And so Paul encourages Timothy. He says, Thou therefore, my son, be strong, and that strength is only found in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. And he gave us three commands, didn't he? The first command was to be strong. The second command is to commit what we have to other people. And the final command is to endure hardness. Because we are like soldiers, we are like athletes, and we are like farmers. And now this context, again, be ready for defense, it's in the context of suffering persecution because you're a believer. Peter is writing to the 12 tribes who are scattered because of persecution. And he's encouraging them. Who is it that can harm you? Who can actually touch you? If you are following Christ, it is only man that can harm you. So don't fear people. Who is it that can harm you if you be followers of that which is good? But even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And he's going back to the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So... When we are persecuted we need to remind ourselves that the only one I need to fear is God. That the second thing I need to remind myself is that I am blessed. You and I receive a reward for being persecuted for the cause of Christ. We don't need to be afraid of their threats. And then he tells us what to do. We are to sanctify. We're to be ready to give a defense. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer. For everyone that asketh you a reason for the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. There's five things that I want us to look at in this simple little verse. Where do we start? We start by sanctifying the Lord. Sanctify. Hagias, it means to separate as holy. If I'm going to be ready to defend my Christian faith, the very first step that I need to do is to spend time alone with God. I've got to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. I've got to spend time setting myself apart with God to be empowered by God. That's where it begins. It's in your heart. It's the inner man. The outward man perishes, but the inward man is renewed every single day. And if you haven't done that first step by sanctifying God in your hearts, when you go out into the battlefield, you will not be ready. Yesterday, I had the perfect opportunity to talk to a man, and I didn't take advantage of it. And I got in my truck, and I drove home, and I said, Lord, forgive me. I wasn't ready. I hadn't sanctified. I was thinking about so many other things other than Christ. And I blew it. I had an opportunity. This guy came walking over to me and began the conversation. And then he ended the conversation by saying, can I get you a bottle of water? I mean, if anybody was the witness, it was him witnessing to me. And I got in my truck and I said, I could have offered him living water. But I didn't sanctify the Lord in my, and so I was not ready. When you sanctify the Lord in your heart, you will be thinking spiritually instead of temporally. So that's where it begins. Be ready with an answer. The New King James says defense. The Greek word is apologia. It's where we get the word apologetics or defending our Christian faith. Doesn't mean that I apologize for being a Christian. It means I tell you why I am a Christian. The word reason is the Greek word logos, where we get the word logic. So we need to be ready with a rational, logical reason for our hope. Christianity is not a blind step in the dark, it's not walking off a bridge not knowing what's going to happen. It is a reasonable, Faith. It's a historical faith. It's a rational belief system like any other. We do it with meekness. The word meekness is a mild and humble disposition. I was talking with Dee last Sunday, and this is the thing that we were talking about. You don't win people to Christ by offering them vinegar. You win them by offering them honey. You do it with a meek and mild disposition. And why? Because I am a sinner that has found grace. There's no boasting. There's no law that I obey to get where I'm at. It's done with meekness, a mild and with fear. And it's not the word phobios. It's a different Greek word. And this word means respect for the other person respecting their differences. I was talking again this morning with another believer, Robert, and he was talking about some friends of his that had given him a Book of Mormon. Very sincere, very genuine. And he received it with meekness and he thanked them. And he respected them for their willingness to share their faith with him. And you know what that does? It gives Robert and Elise an open door to share with them why they believe in Christ. So this is this is our, our simple verse today that, that shows us how to do this. Now, the rest of this is going to be kind of answering objections to our Christian faith. I was talking with another brother and this subject came up last week about evangelism and he said, "Honestly, I I don't evangelize as much as I ought to because I'm fearful. And one of the things that brings us fear is that I'm not going to be able to answer their objections. Uh, What if if they stump me? You know what, that's okay. You can say, you know what, I'll get back with you on that. That's a a really, really good question, and I don't have an answer right now. But let me me find one. Well, today I want to try to prepare you with answers that I think are the top five questions that people will object to why you have faith in Christ. And the first one, and I think this is a strong argument, and and we have to answer it with with meekness because evil is everywhere in our world and people are suffering everywhere. And so we can't answer this with flippant little catchphrases. we We need to empathize with people in their suffering. We need to acknowledge that, yes, evil is rampant in our world. How can there be an all-powerful, loving God with so much evil and suffering in the world? Well, there is a rational answer to that question. But one thing that we can do is we can ask a clarifying question. What do you mean by an all-powerful God? And they may say, "Well, well, a God who could just stop all evil. And then you could ask a follow-up question. Well, what would that look like if God just forcibly stopped everyone from doing anything wrong? What if there was no suffering? What would happen if you put your hand on a burning stove and there was no suffering and you had no pain sensors? What would happen in life? So you could ask some, some clarifying. You don't have to give them an answer, but make them think. So I said the thing that we should do is ask a clarifying question. How can there be three persons and yet one God? I've had so many of my LDS friends say who was Jesus praying to if he and God are the same. The Trinity doesn't mean there are three gods. there are three persons in one God. Well, look at the Trinity. Can the Bible be trusted? Again, many of our LDS friends will say, so long as the Bible's rightly translated. I've heard that. Or I've heard unbelievers tell me, well, I don't trust the Bible. It was written by man. How can I believe a book that was written by a man 2,000 years ago? How can I trust it? That thing's ancient. It's archaic. It's out of date. Fourth question, hasn't science and evolution given us the answer to life? I don't need God. Well, fortunately, science is finally catching up with the Bible. And that question, I don't think we need to be so fearful of at all. The last question, how can you make the claim that Jesus is the only way to God? Isn't that arrogant? What about all the other religions in the world and people who are sincere looking for an answer and they don't know about Jesus or they've heard about Jesus but they don't believe that he is the son of God? They don't believe that Jesus Christ raised himself from the dead? How can you say that those people are not going to be in eternity with God but they'll be in hell? So those are some difficult questions, and I want to prepare us today to be ready for an answer for the hope that's in you. Doing it with meekness and fear, having a good conscience when they observe your life. So let's begin to look at these questions. So how can an all-power, I know it's awful wordy up there, but this is only one slide for this one. So if you can read it. Let's just kind of walk through it together. How can an all-powerful, loving God allow evil and suffering? And I've already talked about what do you mean by all-powerful? What is more powerful? Ask this question. What is more powerful, a God who created automatons who could only do as they were programmed, or a God who created moral creatures who could make real choices and still achieve his purposes. God is sovereign over all. God is in control of everything, and God still could give free will to man and still accomplish his purposes? That's an all-powerful God, not a God who made robots who did exactly what he programmed to do in order to to achieve his purposes. So this is the all-powerful God that the Bible speaks of. If God is loving, would He prefer creatures who willingly loved Him or those who were programmed only to love Him? The obvious question of that is that God would prefer creatures that would come to Him and love Him. If I had a potion that I gave my wife when she was 17 years old, standing at the Sourdough Inn, making those slushies, and I was walking down the road and I slipped something in that and said, This is going to make Tracy love me whether she wants to or not. I think I need that more today than I did. (laughs) Because now she knows me. (laughs) She didn't know me back then. She loves me anyway. And that's why I love her. Why? Because she knows all of my defects. She knows all of my imperfections, and she chooses to love me. That's love and that's what an all-powerful loving god desires in our relationship with him is it is love possible without the ability to choose could a loving powerful god have good reasons for allowing suffering when somebody asks you that that's a great question to ask them could an all-powerful god actually who is so wise and so infinite have a good reason to allow suffering. If God had not cast man out of the garden, if God had not cursed the earth, if God had not made life difficult for you and I, we would never turn and look to God for answers. We would never find everlasting life. We would never appreciate the things that we do have. We would never have the ability to empathize with other people. We would never have the opportunity to invest our lives in other hurting people to make a difference. Next time you go to the dentist and he's got that long needle and he's going to stick it in your gum, he said, whoa, whoa, I don't want any of that suffering. He says, okay, let me get the pliers out and see if I can take that tooth out. No, I would rather have a little bit of suffering right then because a greater good is going to happen. He's going to yank that abscess or whatever out of my mouth. How would you define evil? The moment someone defines evil in the world, they have to acknowledge the opposite. To say there is evil in the world is to actually admit that there is a God. How would you define evil? There can only be objective moral evil if there's a standard outside of man. You and I have watched on the news this week the atrocities, the horrific things that are happening in Israel. It is nothing but pure evil and satanic darkness. Now, how can you and I objectively say that? If that's just my opinion, just your opinion, And the people of Hamas have a different opinion. Theirs is just as right as yours and I's. But there is an objective standard that lies outside of me and you and outside of this world, and that's the eternal God. That moral standard is perfect, which points us to God. The cross. This is our answer to that question. How can a good God allow suffering and evil God entered in to suffering. God entered into evil. God took upon himself all the iniquity of the world. No other religious leader dared to do that. The cross is God's display of an all-powerful God, a loving God who redeems all suffering and evil. God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 8, 58, 18. This present suffering is not worthy to be compared to the glory that has been revealed. So the cross demonstrates God's hatred for evil and suffering and that he came to redeem it all. Without God... There is no hope for evil to be judged or suffering ever to be righted. You think about that. Acts 13, 17.31 says, Because he appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Without God, every evil act will go unpunished. Only with a God will evil and suffering be righted and wronged. So that's not that difficult a question when you walk people through that first opposition to the gospel. How can there be three persons and yet one God? This is a good question to ask somebody. If the Bible taught a triune God, would you believe it? If the Bible actually teaches that, or is this something that man made up? Well, I don't have a lot of verses up here, but I think this is ample to show that there's a triune God. Uh, Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image. The Hebrew is clear. Elohim is the magnificent, all-powerful God, and it is in the plural. Sometimes it has singular verbs, as in Genesis 1:1. In the beginning, Elohim created Bara. It's singular, the heavens and the earth, because the plural God is one God. But here in Genesis 126, we have the plural prefix to the verb, and we have the plural pronoun, our, showing us that there are three persons within the Trinity right from the start. The Trinity was responsible for creation. God the Father, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. The very next verse, it says, and the Spirit moved on the face of the waters. That word moved, two German Hebrew scholars, Kyla and Dalich, take that Hebrew participle, and say it was an active force of creation. Now, these are Hebrew scholars, and they know what that word means. So the Spirit moved on the face of the water. It was creating. It was active. And not only that, Psalm 104, verse 30 says this, He spoke, and the Spirit created. So we've got the Psalms that tell us that. In John's Gospel, we're told, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by Him, Jesus. And without Jesus, nothing was made that is made. In Colossians 1, 15 and 16, I didn't put it up there, but Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And through Him and by Him, all things were created in heaven and earth, thrones and dominions, principalities and powers. All things were created by Jesus, and everything was created for Jesus. So the Trinity is taught in creation. The Trinity is taught in the resurrection of Christ. If I will believe in my heart and confess with my mouth, thou shalt be saved. But what am I supposed to believe and what am I supposed to confess? If I confess the Lord Jesus and believe in my heart that God has raised him from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead. But then we find in John's Gospel, two references where Jesus says he raised himself from the dead. In John chapter 2 and verse 18, the context is the cleansing of the temple. Jesus is turning the tables over. He's chasing out the money uh, exchangers driving their animals out of the temple. He says, this is my father's house, and the zeal of my father's house has eaten me up. When he's called God my father, John chapter 15, Jesus, John chapter 5, he made himself equal to God. He said, you show us a sign. What authority do you have, Jesus? Jesus had destroyed this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. God the Father raised Jesus. Jesus raised himself. John chapter 10, I'm sorry, yeah, John 10, 18. Jesus said, I have power to lay my life down, and I have power to take it up again. The Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. I don't have the verse, but it's in Romans chapter 8, right around verse 13. It says, the Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us, but also in 1 Peter 3.18, passage that we read this morning, it says this, for Christ also suffered once for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, and the old King James says, and quickened. That means made alive by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit raised Jesus Christ from the dead. So we've got the Trinity taught in the resurrection. The Trinity is clearly taught in the baptism formula, baptizing them in the name, that's singular, of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This verse affirms the equality and the oneness of God. Jesus is God, Isaiah 9, 6. Unto us a son is given, unto us a child is born, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. That's Jesus. He is the everlasting Father. He is the mighty God. He is the Prince of Peace. That's just one verse in Isaiah. There's so many in the Old Testament that refer to Jesus being God. John 8, 58, Jesus said, Before Abraham was I am. The self-existent one, the one who always was, the one who is, and the one who always will be. And you know what they did when he said they picked up stones to kill him? Because he just blasphemed making himself equal to God. The only time that the I am statement was ever found in the Old Testament was Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14. Later on, in John's Gospel, chapter 10, I didn't put it up there, but John 10, verse 30, Jesus said this I and my Father are one. Now, the numerical adjectives in Greek have masculine, neuter, and feminine. If he meant to say one in person, he would have used the masculine. But he uses the neuter. And A.T. Robinson, who is a great Greek scholar, says this, that neuter clearly states that they were one in essence, one in quality, that they were identical in in their personhood of their divinity. The Jews understood perfectly what Jesus said. Now, I've heard people tell me, when I've quoted that verse to them, they say, oh, that means one in purpose. But you know what they did? They picked up stones to kill him. No one is ever stoned for saying, I and my father, I have the same purpose. You and I could say that, and it's not blasphemous. But to say that I am the exact same essence of God, they picked up stones, and Jesus said, for what good work do you stone me? They said, not for a good work, but you being a man, make yourself God. They understood perfectly what Jesus was saying in John chapter 10 and verse 30. It's not up there but that's a good one to quote is also. The Holy Spirit is God. You know the story in Acts chapter 5. They're taking up their Sunday morning offering at the church at Jerusalem and everybody's putting in their, their gifts to the offering plate and they're selling their property. Ananias and Sapphira, they they say, well we sold our property but we want to keep some of it. Everybody else is giving the whole thing to the church but we We don't want to do that." So they tell everybody, yeah, this is the whole shebang. And Peter looks at them and he says, how dare you? You have lied to the Holy Spirit. How did it conceive in your heart? Because you didn't lie to men, you lied to God. So in that passage, we're told that he lied to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is looked on as God. We're told in Hebrews chapter 10 that through the eternal spirit, God offered Him; Christ offered himself. So the Holy Spirit has every essence and every attribute that God has as well. So that's one way we can answer that. Now, I wish my friend that talked to me last week was here, but I'm going to have to get together with this person and just share with them because they were talking with an LDS friend, and I want to do this with the greatest respect because... They are very, very sincere in what they believe, and they read the Book of Mormon, they study the Book of Mormon, but many of them may have missed this verse. This is from the Book of Mormon, 2 Nephi 31.21, and now behold, this is the doctrine of Christ and the only true doctrine of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Ghost, which is one God without a Amen. I don't think the LDS Church even realizes that this verse is in the Book of Mormon. This is stronger than any triune verse in the Bible. You see, the, the LDS faith, it evolved over time. And when Joseph Smith wrote this, he later changed his teaching that we are a plurality of gods, and that we too must learn to be God, and that God wasn't always God, but He became God and was once a man, and that there are an infinite number of gods. So, this has been changed over the years. By the rules of grammar, if the writer intended to express agreement of three people, he would have said, which are one. However, the verb is shows the writer clearly stated that there is only one God. The Book of Mormon actually teaches that God became flesh. This is found in Mosiah, I don't know if I'm saying that right, 15, 1 through 4. I would that you should understand that God himself, God himself shall come down among the children of men and redeem his people. So God himself is going to be incarnate. This is what the Book of Mormon teaches. And because he dwelleth in the flesh, he shall be called the Son of God, and have subjected to the flesh and the will of the Father, being the Father and the Son. Father, because he's conceived of the power of God, and flesh, thus becoming the Father and the Son, and they are one God. So all subsequent prophets have contradicted this teaching in later theology of the LDS Church. So this question about the Trinity, usually it's by my LDS friends who say, how can you believe in a triune God? How can you believe that God became flesh? And if we can just gently and lovingly, with compassion, say, you know what? Your religious book also teaches that as well, but now you don't believe it. Why is that? And so just, if you could just plant a question in their mind to open them up to further discussion. That's all you really need to do. How can I trust the Bible? Well, I think a good question to ask them is, why do you think the Bible to be untrustworthy? What have you heard about the Bible? You'll be amazed that they absolutely know nothing of the Bible. Or they'll say something like this, well, the Bible's full of contradictions. You know what I've asked them? I've asked them, can you share one contradiction with me? And they can't. This is something that they have heard. It's a mantra that somebody told them, and somebody told them, well, you just can't trust the Bible. It was written by men. It's, it's, it's 2,000 years old. So here's some questions that we can ask them. Do you realize that there are more copies for the Bible than any other ancient manuscript? Did you realize that? And they probably would say no. We've got about five to six manuscripts for Plato, Aristotle, and the Greek philosophers. All of them combined, we might have 25 manuscripts. For all of these great writers, what do we have for the Bible in the New Testament? We have 24,000 manuscripts for the New Testament. Next place, how can I trust the Bible? Archaeological evidence confirms the accuracy of the Bible. The city of Jericho was discovered right around 1930, Well, the first time was 1913 by a German archaeologist named John Garstang. When John Garstang excavated the Tell of Jericho, he found that the city had been burned three feet of burnt ash in his diggings. He found that there was a large retaining wall that was about 30 feet tall. There was another wall behind it even higher And he discovered that the bricks of the top wall fell and they got caught by the retaining wall at the bottom and the retaining wall then fell out and there was literally a ramp leading straight up into the city of Jericho. This is what archaeology discovered. The city was burned, a ramp into the city. When they got into the city, they found large, large pottery basins filled with grain. That's interesting because the Bible tells us in Joshua chapter 3 and verse 15 that they crossed over the Jordan River at flood stage because it was right after the harvest. Why was the city of Jericho filled with grain? It was after the harvest. Why was there still grain in the city? That's a good question. The siege obviously was very, very short. Joshua tells us the siege only lasted seven days. Why don't you take the plunder and the spoil? Nobody sieges a city, takes it, burns it with all of the goods inside of it unless God said this city is under a ban, under a curse. That's why the grain was there. Every piece of evidence fits together. And then a later archaeologist named Alan Wood, Dr. Alan Wood, found pottery shards with black and red designs. And those designs go back to the 1400 BC. When did Joshua come to the promised land? In 1404 BC. Now, how do we know that? If you're taking notes, you can write this verse down. It's 1 Kings chapter 6. 1 Kings chapter 6 says Solomon built his temple 480 years after the Exodus. You will be taught by liberal scholars that the Exodus happened in 1290. And so this possibly couldn't be Jericho. That's what Catherine Kenyon said. She says, this couldn't have been Jericho because we know that the Exodus happened in 1290. She's basing that on one verse of the Bible that says that they built the cities of Ramses. It's anachronism. The name had been changed. And at the time that the copyist was writing the book of Exodus, it was clearly known as the city of Ramses. That's what everybody knew it as. Let me just give you an example. Downtown Chattanooga. There was a a street in Chattanooga that was named after a Civil War general. At the time of of, um, integration, they changed the name of that city to Martin Luther King Boulevard. Now, if I was writing a newspaper article, I was writing anything or I was giving you directions, if I gave you the name of that that street that was 200 years ago, no one would know a clue what I was talking about. But if I said Martin Luther King Boulevard, everybody would have known. So that's all that the Bible is doing there. But that verse in 1 Kings chapter 6, if we date that, we know exactly when Solomon built his temple. Solomon began the building of his temple in 966 A.D., because it was the fourth year of his reign, and we know exactly how long King David reigned, and David reigned in the, in the era of, of, of 1000 B.C., and so if we take that backwards, we know exactly when Solomon began his reign, and so 480 years earlier, now this is hard for our brains to think about because we're going B.C., we're going backwards in time, So if I add 480 on 966, you know what it comes to? It comes to 445 B.C. Exactly. That's when they left Egypt. How long did they wander in the wilderness? They wandered 40 years. That brings us up to 405 B.C. And we know it was exactly one year later because they're observing the Passover before they go into the land. So it's 404, and the pottery, I mean, if it had a date on it, it would probably said, I got this pot in 404 B.C., but it does have a date, literally. The designs on the pottery, they know exactly when this city was burned. They know how extensive the burn, and here's another cool thing. You remember who was spared in the city of Jericho? And I know I've gotten way long-winded. I mean, I've got tons of stuff I've got to share with you guys. I like archaeology, though but they found a section of the wall that didn't collapse. You say, so what? Yeah, so what? Rahab lived in the city wall. There it is, standing right before us, that living testimony of God's word and his accuracy. I'm going to try to quickly go through these other things. People used to say King David was a mythological figure, kind of on, on the same level as... as uh, Peter Pan, <laughs> I can't think of who I was trying to think. King Arthur, that's what I was trying to think of. But, but in, 900, in, in 900 B.C., they find Estella, and it's got the words, House of David. A dynasty ruling in Israel it goes all the way back to 900 B.C., and so that was one of David's grandsons leading and ruling in Israel at the time. The Assyrian siege. If you go to uh, 2 Kings, it tells us that Sennacherib conquered every defense city in Judah. No other religious book records its defeats except for the Bible. And the Bible tells us that every one of Judah's defense city had been taken, and the last city to fall was the great city of Lachish, because it was the next defense city protecting Jerusalem from the Assyrian invasion. Well, they. Archaeologists found the city of Nineveh, and they found an archive that was carved in the wall showing the city under siege. It shows the siege engines. It shows the ramp. It shows the, the arrows flying in and the people fleeing, and it actually shows them with chains around their neck being led off into captivity, exactly like the Bible says. So that, that defeat of, of Israel was found in 701. Sennacherib came all the way to Jerusalem, and this king, Hezekiah, took all of his gold and all that he had, and he gave it to Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, hoping that that would pacify him. Archaeologists have found that it's called Sennacherib's Prism, and on it, he says, I had King Hezekiah hedged in like a bird in the cage. But he never took the city. Why not? Well, one reason is because Hezekiah diverted the water from the springs of Gihon to a pool inside of the city. It's a marvel of engineering. They had no GPS. They, I mean, they had none of the technology we have today. It snakes under the city of Jerusalem, one thousand. 750 feet from the point where the tunnel starts to where it ends, it's 0.6 fall of gravity to let that water go all the way down. How in the, and even greater than that, the tunnelers were digging at opposite ends going all the way under through solid bedrock and they meet each other. It's incredible. And people looked at that passage and said, this is, an heir. This, uh, this is mythology. This didn't happen until a little boy was chucking some rocks one day, and he heard a splash, and he starts digging, and he finds a tunnel, and then they excavate the tunnel, and inside the tunnel, they actually find written on the wall, the diggers meet each other on such and such a date, and Hezekiah's tunnel was completed. Amazing stuff. Well, I don't have enough time to go through any more of it, but um Historical evidence points to the accuracy of the Bible, and we don't have time, but if, there was, if you just write this name down if you want to, his name was Sir William Ramsay. Sir William Ramsay looked at the book of Luke and the book of Acts. He was an atheist. He was an archaeologist from Glasgow, um, Scotland, and he went to disprove the Bible, and he came back a believer in Jesus Christ, and he was knighted by the queen and changed his name to Sir William Ramsay. But all these people, they thought were mythological, especially this guy right here. Licinius was Tetrarch over Abilene. They found an inscription saying that he was Tetrarch over Abilene from 4 B.C. to 6 A.D., the exact time when Jesus Christ was born. This verse tells us that Jesus began his ministry in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. The 15th year of Tiberius Caesar is 29 A.D. So fulfilled prophecy, I'm sorry, but I don't have time for that this morning. I've gotten too windy on the other stuff. But let me just let me just go through the book of Genesis alone. There are over 100, I can't help myself, I'm sorry, Samantha. <laughs> there are 100 prophecies, over 100. Some Bible scholars say there are 300 specific prophecies about Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. 300, one person fulfilling it, the mathematical probability is zero that that would happen. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, the first prophecy about Jesus, the seed of the woman is going to crush or bruise the serpent's head. The seed of the woman, that seems kind of strange, doesn't it? Tells us about the virgin birth. Then it says in Genesis chapter 12, the seed of Abraham. Is going to bless the entire world and then in genesis chapter 49 somebody from the line of judah is going to have a scepter that's going to rule forever over the kingdoms of this earth and then in second samuel chapter 7 and verse 15 and 16 that person is david and jesus christ came from the seed of abraham and the seed of david fulfilling all those ancient prophecies we could go to psalm 22 and talk about the crucifixion there Many, many verses in that chapter talk about the crucifixion, his hands, feet being pierced, offering him gall bitter to drink, uh, his bones staring at him, that they gambled for his clothes, they pierced his side, on and on and on. We could just talk about prophecy. How can I trust the Bible? It is the most reliable book that you and I will ever read. It is without error. It is God's breath to you and I. As an evolution in science, well, we are probably going to close here, but I just want to go to one verse and and some good questions to ask people. One thing about the, what what is the scientific method? The scientific method is observable, testable, and repeatable. Darwinism has never been observed, it's never been tested, and it's never been repeated. It's not a science, it's a theory at best. Some questions, can matter create itself? Can life come from non-life? Don't think so. Do organisms become out of randomness do they become more complex? No, it's just the opposite. We know from the laws of science. This is probably the most scientific verse that you'll ever ever read in the beginning that tells us time a spectrum of point in a continuum created This tells us that there's energy, the concept of energy, and the idea of cause and effect. Without a creator, there is no creation. For everything that's created, there has to be a creator. For every painting, there's an artist. For every architectural drawing, there's an architect. For every pie that's been baked, there's a baker. And so the cause and effect. Um, The heavens, that's our vast region of space. Earth, it's matter. It comes down to reasonable faith. What is more reasonable? The universe came from nothing? Order came from chaos, and inanimate soup gave rise to personality. <laughs> now, some of us might think so, but you don't get personality. You don't get intelligence. You don't get feelings. You don't have tears. It doesn't arise from inanimate soup because it got electrocuted. I'm sorry. Okay. Or is it more reasonable to leave a personal? God created the universe with order, predictable design, and purpose. All right. I think we'll just go ahead and stop. Um, I keep saying that, don't I? (laughs) Is Jesus the only way? We didn't get there. Um, But there's good answers for that as well, that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. And let me just say this one thing. If you can't remember anything else, when somebody asks you, why is it that Jesus Christ is the only way? You ask them, did any other religious teacher promise to take your sin and prove it by raising himself from the dead? No other religious teacher would have dared to say that because all of their claims would have been falsified. Because Jesus lives, every one of his claims has been verified. Jesus often authenticated his claim with evidence. He says, I am the bread of life. And then he fed 5,000 people. Jesus told Martha and Mary, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And then he raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus forgave sins when he saw the man being lowered down in that house. He said, your sins are forgiven. And then he proved it. What's easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say paralyzed man, get up and walk? But that you know that Jesus can do that, take up your bed and walk. Our Christ is the only one who took our sin, nailed it to the cross, and defeated our enemy of death and is alive. So yes, Jesus is the only way. We don't have time to look at the proofs for the resurrection, but we'll maybe say that for another time. So I pray today that you feel a little bit more prepared to talk to people about Jesus Christ and that there are reasonable answers for your faith and that you can be confident. But where do we start? We start by sanctifying the Lord God in our hearts. We're ready to give a defense for the reason, the logic, the reasonable facts that we believe about the Bible, we believe about creation, we believe about Jesus, the evidence that supports it. Get over our fears, trust the Lord, open our mouth, and tell people about Christ. Father, I pray today that you'll use this. God, I know it was a ton of information, maybe too much information, but God, if nothing else, I pray, God, that people heard this,